Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Inferiors revolt so that they may be equal, and equals so that they may be superior. Aristotle. Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and I've been chipping away with the writing for this episode for a couple of weeks now, and this recording happens to fall on Valentine's Day. The episode was not written with this theme in mind, nor this date or this anniversary in mind, but today happens to be the five-year anniversary of the Parkland Elementary School shooting. 17 students and staff were shot dead at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14, 2018. Five years later, this morning, another American campus, one of the largest in the country, is waking up searching for answers of its own in the wake of a similar tragedy. Good morning. Um, Deputy Chief Chris Rosman with the Michigan State University Police and Public Safety. As you can tell, this has been a long night for a lot of us. We know that this news may be difficult for those within our campus community and beyond. It's important to remember that the grief that some individuals may be experiencing is normal. Two American events changed my generation's impact on society forever, and they both occurred at basically the same time. Of course, 9-11 is the first. And the mass shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado two years before was the second. Whatever is third on the list doesn't really even come close. We're used to this. We shouldn't be in a perfect world, of course, but we are. Mass violence against children is a psychological trauma at this point for my generation, and we'll never recover. It is a part of being alive at this time in this place. And any hope that my generation ever had of somehow fixing this, alleviating this problem before our kids themselves became school-aged, has dissipated entirely, as the issue has become a national political football, essentially. School shootings are difficult to understand, which is not helping. And the more cases we have, the more shootings that happen, the more data that comes in on these incidents. And we study them and we look for motives and we look for triggers and we look for loopholes and laws. But the more of these data we collect, the less we understand about why these things happen in the first place. 
because there are a whole bunch of different factors. There are individual contributors, there are community factors, and of course there are social issues to face for each one of these incidents separately, individually. And there isn't a direct, consistent correlation from shooting to shooting. So again, the more data we collect, the more research that is done, the further we get from this not happening anymore, the further we get from a fix. We are more dependent on a national federal government than at any point in recent American political history. And our federal government was intended to be a loose structure in deference to the states and the local governments, because the federal government doesn't do nuance well. It's not supposed to do nuance well. If you want something blown up, if you want a whole bunch of money spent on something, the federal government can't do any better. But when it comes to navigating a white-hot political landscape, wading into an issue that is caused by a fluctuating degree of a dozen different contributing factors, call me cynical, but good luck with Uncle Sam on that one. Many my age, in the Columbine generation as it were, now have to navigate this existential threat as relates to our own children. Earlier this year, my own kids' schools were among hundreds that were affected by anonymous bomb threats or shooting threats that were made to schools all over the country of all sizes. And so now, this condition too has been inherited by our children. The threat is not acute, it's psychological. It is exceedingly unlikely that my kids or anyone else's will be shot while they're at school. And we know this, like rationally at some level. There's something like 75 million kids in America. Statistics suggest that about 40 of them will be shot and killed at school this year. 40 out of 75 million. That percentage literally breaks my calculator. I can't express to you how unlikely and remote a possibility that is for any one child in America to die by school violence. There are a thousand other terrible things that are much more likely to happen to our kids. And yes, we worry about those too. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. Any parent listening out there, make a list of concerns and fears that you have for your children. School shootings probably aren't at the very top of that list. They shouldn't be at the very top of that list, honestly. But guarantee you, it's higher on your list than one thousandth. And it may well be in some parents' top ten. Because rare, just astronomically rare, as they mathematically are, they're real. And the horror of the prospect outweighs our rational understanding of that staggering impossibility. Violence at school has become a top social issue for many reasons. Many of us know the names Parkland, Columbine, and several others that we could name off the top of our head just without looking. These acts are a visceral attack on our collective innocence and our human vulnerability. And so when these things do happen to children, no less, they matter, no matter how rare they are. And these things can and do happen anywhere, Wyoming included. This is a revolution, the man declared. If it was, it was going to be a small one, and an unlikely one. David Young had never succeeded at anything consequential in his life, and certainly nothing that would lend him credibility as a revolutionary. But that was then. Now, they would finally be made to listen. Two of the 515 people who lived in Cokeville, Wyoming, near the Idaho-Utah border, 
had taken the occasion of Friday, May 16, 1986, to change the world as they saw it. Every revolutionary is known, at least to some, and David certainly was. Nobody in a town that small anywhere is unknown, but the 43-year-old David Young was more recognizable than even most. Until that day in 1986, he'd been out of the area for some time, but he was infamous in a way, we'll say memorable. David Young's social and political opinions were readily apparent to anyone who had the misfortune to show an interest in them, and they were reinforced, David Young believed, by a police sciences degree that he possessed from a college in Nebraska. He used that degree to become Cokeville, Wyoming's one and only law enforcement officer. That lasted about six months, during which time David Young had met and began a romantic relationship with a 47-year-old woman named Doris, who was married. And so had been David at the time. When David Young's floundering attempt at keeping the peace in Cokeville had resulted in his basically being run out of town inside half a year, due not only to his illicit affair, but also numerous citizen complaints and possible crimes from the sounds of things, David and Doris left their respective spouses, married one another, and rode off into the sunset. They would return. And their stated revolution of May 16, 1986, would be a day that few alive in Wyoming at the time, and certainly nobody that lived in Cokeville, will ever forget. Secrets today are more difficult to keep, and a person's past now is more difficult to run away from than ever before. Misstating a criminal record to authorities, lying about past employment in a job interview, even misleading a date someone you're going out with about past relationships, all of these today are kind of difficult to do in the age of the internet. They are verifiable and nearly inescapable parts of our past in a world with information at our fingertips. It was not always that way, of course. After leaving western Wyoming in disgrace, David Young's prospects in other states weren't hindered at all. He was able to move from place to place throughout the early 1980s without his next boss or the public that he was sworn to protect any wiser. And so David Young held various law enforcement positions in different states before his calamitous return to Wyoming. Most recently, he'd been a police officer in Arizona. Two people, one of them a prominent member of the community, having an illicit affair apart from their respective spouses and running away together. In a small town, that's juicy stuff. But when they finally did return to Cokeville, Wyoming, David and Doris's rapid flight from town would not prove even remotely as conspicuous as their return. When David and Doris came back earlier in that week of May 1986, they were not alone. Doris's 19-year-old daughter from her previous marriage was with them, along with David's odd posse of his own, a 42-year-old former high school classmate, a 32-year-old man named Doyle Mendenhall, who to David appears to have been just a random guy that he collected while living in Idaho. They all traveled back to Wyoming with David and Doris. Not so much in search of revolution, those two were as maybe a quick buck. The elders of the group, David and Doris, had a plan to make money, they said. An idea convincing enough to attract three other people, including Doris's daughter, to their cause. Those two other men would find themselves handcuffed, to the inside of a van with windows blotted out by white paints being driven by a teenager inside of a week. Revolutions require brave resistance after all, and these two former friends of David Young's had been found wanting in their resolve. And so the plan would continue without them. 
Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy States. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to one of the best states in the country, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn and Suites is conveniently located, serves a free hot breakfast too. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. Zero equals infinity. Zero equals infinity. That's what was written in a manifesto of sorts distributed by David Young on the day of his revolution. He didn't use words. He wrote this in mathematical symbols. David Young had first written about this concept, zero equals infinity or some such thing, 10 years before this. I have chosen to probably erroneously take these words seriously for a moment in order to try to understand some context for our story, mostly so you don't have to do it. This zero equals infinity, this was David Young's message. All different types of revolution have been waged, some successfully, most of them not, for all manner of different concepts. But every revolution has been undertaken on behalf of some kind of principled concept. And there's nothing that says the concepts under, beneath a successful revolution have to be correct or accurate, by the way. But it does tend to help if the revolutionary call to arms is at least somewhat comprehended by those outside of the revolution. The point of the revolution is to grow and gain followers to your cause. David Young's revolutionary concept is ambiguous. The earliest use of zero equals infinity in American media that I can find dates to the 19th century, and it's a discussion of mathematical principles. In mathematics, the concepts of zero and infinity are similar. They are linked, but obviously zero is not infinity and vice versa. They're not the same thing. Mathematics existing outside of popular culture has a luxury of debating concepts and arriving at consensus over a long period of time, not over hours, but over years and decades. There has been for about 150 years now an extremely nerdy debate underway within this science between those who believe that dividing anything by zero, for example, results in a technical answer of infinity. It, it doesn't. Zero equals zero, not infinity. So, yeah, sorry, David. I've not been moved to violent revolution by your thesis. And it won't surprise any of you to learn that nobody else was either. On the other hand, his message may have been lost in his delivery a bit. His audience more concerned with the several plastic milk containers filled with gasoline and connected to blasting caps and batteries than they were about thinking about deep mathematical theory. David's wife, 47-year-old Doris, seemed to have little doubt of their scheme's efficacy. She was a believer, as though what they'd planned had no chance of failure whatsoever. Doris journaled, quote, What will we do with all the money? What will we be called in this new world? I'm feeling pretty shaky inside. End quote. The literature of this revolution had been written for more than 10 years by David Young himself, and now, to his confused and terrified hostages, or at least to those who were old enough to read, David distributed his typewritten worldview, formed in no small part by a now all but forgotten group of loosely affiliated white supremacists called Posse Comitatus. 
The majority of David and Doris Young's hostages had no ability to be moved by their perceived plight because they were elementary school students, 136 of them. On Friday, May 16, 1986, David and Doris Young forced 154 people in all into a single room of the Cokeville Elementary School, along with a homemade bomb, and then they detonated it. Posse Comitatus, basically your run-of-the-mill Northwestern fringe anti-government conspiracy group from the 80s and 90s. Its members spread their brand of anti-government, anti-Semitic messaging formed by white supremacy with an intention of countering what they believed to be some perceived attack on white Christian values. By the late 1980s, core members of this movement had adopted an uncreative but dangerous belief that they were God's chosen people. Ironically echoing the plight of the Jewish people, whom they despised, who have been experiencing this actually in real life for generations. The irony has another layer, too, because members of this group claimed to be the true Israelites, not the Jewish people. So they refused to pay taxes. They refused to obtain driver's licenses or basically comply with any regulatory authority from the state whatsoever. As with most far-right groups of that day, most people haven't heard of this group. Their obnoxious impact to this point, again ironically, using the state's court system to file frivolous lawsuits against their ideological enemies. And as with all the others, PC eventually disbanded and was absorbed by other similar white power groups that some may have heard of today. As recently as 2012, five suspects arrested in connection with a fatal shooting of two sheriff's deputies and the wounding of two others in St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana. These men were rumored to be affiliated with some descendants of Posse Comitatus. But on that day in the elementary school in 1986, the majority of their audience couldn't spell Posse Comitatus. And into the elementary school on that day, the Youngs had brought with them an array of 20 handguns and rifles. David Young, during his previous time in Cokeville, in addition to being the one and only cop, had also owned a firearms store at one point. In fact, Young had once been suspected in an armed robbery in town. He was never arrested or charged, perhaps owing to the fact that David Young was, for six months, the entirety of law enforcement in Cokeville, Wyoming. Over a decade before Columbine, there was no thought of securing America's schools against violent outside action, least of all in the tiny town of Cokeville, Wyoming. There were, of course, no metal detectors. There was no thought that anybody outside had any intention to harm children at the school. And so, of course, the youngs were unopposed as they entered the school after 1 p.m. with their small arsenal of guns and pushing a shopping cart full of homemade explosives. They were greeted by a woman at the front desk who asked, Can I help you? To which David Young replied, quote, You surely can. This is a revolution. We are going to take over the school. When David Young's odd posse of former high school classmates and like-minded friends that he'd met in Idaho were finally told earlier on that day of the man's surefire money-making scheme only after they traveled with him to Wyoming, they were horrified, and they refused to have any part with it. This does not appear to have been a contingency that the Youngs had even planned for. It had never occurred to them that these two people would not want to shoot up an elementary school. And so it fell on Doris Young's 19-year-old daughter, who similarly wanted no part in what her mother and stepfather had intended for the rest of the day, to take care of the problem that these two detriments now posed to their revolution. Both men were handcuffed inside of a van, and the terrified teenager was ordered to take care of them, whatever that meant. 
What the 19-year-old did instead was drive immediately, without stopping for anything, to the local police station. Imagine this van with whited-out windows driven by a teenage girl with two grown men handcuffed in the back, tearing into the police station parking lot in Cokeville, Wyoming. She didn't even stop to turn off the ignition. There was, or soon would be, she told the police, a serious problem at Cokeville Elementary. Doris Young had one job on that day of the revolution. Without invoking panic, the unassuming-looking middle-aged woman went from classroom to classroom, coaxing and informing students and teachers, too, that a mandatory school assembly would be taking place. She directed everyone to a nearby first-grade classroom. Most of the students and teachers did what they were told without question. Upon entering to find David Young, his guns, and something explosive-looking in a shopping cart in the center of the room, it was too late. The terrified children were ordered to stay. Everything would be fine if the police listened to him, David said, and gave him what he wanted. There was nothing to fear, he said. A revolution was coming. Eventually, everybody inside the school was forced into that single classroom to wait, including a class which had been out at recess at the time, and two particularly unfortunate men, one a mailman, and the other who'd been at the school simply to apply for a job. Everybody, teachers, students, and unfortunate bystanders, were now collected inside a single room with the youngs, guns, and a bomb. And now what? Revolutions are expensive. The youngs demanded $2 million per hostage, $300 million in all, for the safe release of all of their hostages which was a ridiculous demand, equivalent to three-quarters of a billion dollars today. As police arrived on the scene outside the elementary school on that Friday afternoon, though, it's worth wondering what David's real plan for the children really were, because it doesn't appear to have been simply an attention-getting measure to shed light on the truth, the, the gathering of these young hostages. Certainly would do the trick of getting the attention of the community. But David Young's writings specifically mention the students at Cokeville. From his time in the community, David was aware that the students at that school actually tested well above average, and this seems to have shaped his plan in some strange way. Some of the children, at least, would be retained by David in this new world where he would reign over intelligent children. Imagine the scale for a moment. There are 154 people inside a single first-grade classroom that's meant to hold maybe 30 kids, with two apparently deranged adults, a whole bunch of scary-looking guns, and whatever that bomb-looking thing is in the shopping cart. If the threat to life imposed against those 154 people inside that room that day would have been realized, it would have represented a greater loss of life than the eight deadliest school shootings in American history combined. Inside the classroom, as David made his demands by phone to authorities outside, the Youngs had ordered the men, women, and children to surround him and the bomb at the center of the room. He then walled a section around himself and Doris with masking tape, saying, We'll settle in here until they get our money. This is what happened next in that room on that day, according to the Wyoming Historical Society. Once all the hostages were contained in the first grade classroom, David Young informed them they were leading a revolution and distributed copies of his philosophy Zero Equals Infinity to everyone present. Just before implementing the biggie, as David Young called it, he also sent a copy of the document to President Ronald Reagan, the president of Shadron State College, 
and numerous media outlets. Cokeville Elementary School teachers and staff tried to keep the kindergartners through sixth graders calm and entertained. In the tiny classroom, they watched movies, played games, and prayed. And then, shortly after 4 p.m., the bomb exploded. Witnesses later testified just before the explosion, David Young had connected the explosive to his wife. Then when he went to the restroom, which was attached to the classroom, Doris accidentally triggered the bomb by motioning to the hostages with her arms. The explosion engulfed her in flames and burned many nearby children. Chaos ensued. David emerged from the bathroom to find his wife in excruciating pain. He shot and killed her. Students, teachers, staff, and visitors frantically exited the building, and teachers helping many of the students escape through the windows. David saw John Miller, the music teacher, trying to escape and shot him in the back. David then returned to the restroom and killed himself, ending the hostage crisis. All told, 79 of the hostages suffered injuries, mostly second-degree burns, smoke inhalation, and other injuries from the exploding bomb. The injured were triaged to several area hospitals in Wyoming and across the border in Iowa, and across the border in Idaho. Many longtime residents of western Wyoming especially are familiar with the story, but I'm wondering how many of you aren't until now. 154 people, nearly a hundred of them small children, as young as kindergartners, were in a classroom when a bomb went off on Friday, May 16, 1986. Obviously, there were many injuries, 79 to be exact. I do not know. Honest to God, I have no idea how only two people died that day. They were David and Doris Young. 154 people survived. I don't know what else to call it, but miraculous. Certain events in our nation's timeline have become so stenciled into our zeitgeist that just a single word tells the story. Columbine, Parkland. Somehow Cokeville is not one of them. To my knowledge, the Cokeville Elementary School bombing is one of only two acts of school violence in Wyoming's history. The second was a 1993 shooting at Sheridan, a junior high school where a suicidal 29-year-old opened fire on 31 students outside of a P.E. class before taking his own life. Also amazingly on that day, nobody but the gunman died. For whatever reason, the fire alarms were going off. There were um, guns lined up against the, the front of the classroom and David Young was sitting on a desk, I believe the teacher's desk at the front of the classroom. I was old enough to get it, to know that whatever you choose to do could have a negative effect on someone else, like someone else's life could be taken or your own, and that you can't leave. I remember looking up right when it happened and it was almost like a column of fire and just went up and mushroomed down to the ceiling. I remember hearing my name called in the opposite direction of where she was and uh, seeing a hand outstretched to me and I knew that I was supposed to go the other way. Every adult and every child made it out of that explosion alive. It's one of several miracles that children and teachers say took place right in that classroom. For Stephanie, it was a hand of comfort. Others say they saw angels and loved ones that had passed on. A sense of divine proof that Stephanie hopes will serve as a testimony. There were many faiths in that room, and um, you know the the answer was the same for us all. So 
Sources for this episode include reporting by Bill Curry for the LA Times, the Salt Lake City Tribune, the Casper Star Tribune, the Wyoming Historical Society, and the audio that you heard in this episode was in large part from KIFI Television. It's a staggering story. And thanks to everybody who reached out for that suggestion to uh, to tell it. It's one of the most remarkable stories that we've told. One of the most hopeful stories in some strange way that we've told on Dead and Gone in Wyoming. That's all the time we have for this month's episode. I want to thank everybody who's a Patreon supporter and keeping the show going. You can support the show for $10 a month for exclusive access and early access to content. Patreon.com slash Wyoming Podcast. I do enjoy seeing your emails, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. And on Twitter, feel free and follow me and I'll follow you back and can interact on Twitter at Wyoming Podcast. Once again, that's all the time we have for this month's episode. I want to thank everybody for listening and subscribing. For everyone at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.